Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week in our search for truth, we look at what happens when greenies fall out of love with renewables, when conservatives fall in love with big government, and when libertarians start noodling around with drug law reform. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Chris Berg of RMIT University, who this week is live from Liberty Fest in Perth. Chris, what is a Liberty Hi, Fest? <laughs> well, Liberty Fest is actually, it's Liberty Week, in fact. So it's hosted by our friends at the Mankell Economic Education Foundation um, and, of course, Liberty Works, a um, free market liberty organisation based in Queensland. Um, uh, it, this week is ending in a big final Liberty Fest conference, which is really exciting. I'm here talk about a whole bunch of things, um, blockchain, oh, obviously, um, yeah, surprise, surprise. Uh, libertarianism is taxation theft, does the government need to exist? And in fact, last night, um, I did a IPA Generation Liberty event at Murdoch University, which was, which is really fun on drug reform, which I, which I know we'll, we'll talk about later. Yes, yes, no, we must, we must come back to that, uh, Generation Liberty run, of course, by our national manager at the IPA, Renee Gorman, who's there. Also, and uh, Dr. Zach Gorman, also another IPA luminary, also got a, a Guernsey in uh, in Liberty Week. So uh, must be lots of intellectual horsepower over there. Uh, also joining us yeah, today yeah. Uh, is uh, Daniel Wild, IPA's Director of Economics. Hi, Scott. How are you going? Great, mate. Great to have you. And also uh, the man who heads up our Criminal Justice Research Project, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Great to have you in the studio. Uh, so, and don't forget, uh, gentlemen, that we are in our final segment. We will ask you what you have been reading, watching, or listening to. So, everyone should hang around for that. If you're listening on iTunes or any of your great podcast platforms, do not forget to subscribe to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. First up, we're going to uh, talk about some renewable energy ideas that have been flowing from the mouth of the uh, Coalition's Chief Marketing Officer, Scott Morrison. Uh, this week they've thrown the switch to climate change action. They're talking up the Snowy 2.0 project. Uh, also, more cables bringing power from Tasmania. Uh, there's lots of action, action, action. Daniel Wall, what's what's going on here? Well, it's very interesting from a policy and political perspective. And Alan Kohler, who writes for The Australian, um, had a very interesting article on how the sum total of the commitments by the government means that they've now got a 50% renewable energy target, which is the same as Labor. So they're just uh, uh, completely dispensing with how, any idea. How does that work? Well, the way that works is, according to Kohler, he's got some interesting analysis, is that uh, with the announcement of Snowy 2.0 and then the Bass Strait Interconnector, uh, which is a, basically a cable from Tasmania to the mainland, um, that the feasibility study that actually underpins why this inter interconnector makes sense implies, or it says that um, it's only viable if 7,000 megawatt hours of Australian coal-fired generation is replaced by solar and wind. And so what Kohler is saying is, well, implicit in the development of this new infrastructure is the assumption that that coal will be replaced by wind and solar by 2025. So what he's saying is if you add up the fact that they currently have a 20% um, renewable target in the national energy market. On top of that is by 2030, the coalition has already said we've got a 39% target. And he's saying, well, when you add up all these extra assumptions embedded in the feasibility study, that means they're assuming a 50% target 
um, by 2030. So that means, of course, that they're completely the same as Labor. So they've just made it transparent that, yeah, we're the same as Labor now, rather than before they had an 11 percentage point difference, um, and apparently that was sufficient differentiation. But what's, what's really interesting about this to me, though, is Kohler's analysis is very astute, but it assumes that governments make policy decisions based upon evidence and feasibility, which they don't. This is just an announcement to try and nullify what they perceive, the Liberals perceive, as a negative uh, component of their voter appeal. So what is, the, what is the political economy of this then? If it's just about politics, why is it that the Liberal Party has moved to make their position less distinguishable from their opponents? I mean, going into an election... You know, it's, not, it's like Pepsi rebranding their cans in red or something. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense given that they're, a, you know, they're main opposition. Yeah, it's a good, good question observation. I think that their assessment is that they need to nullify the, the environment and energy and climate change matter. Just as people have argued that Labor needs to nullify border protection, um, there's obviously people in the Liberals I think they need to nullify climate change. Now, I don't agree with that at all. But that's, that's the assessment that they've made, and that's why they've basically just adopted um, the same uh, renewable target as Labor. I don't really yeah, believe yeah, this. Look, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interpretation of the Wentworth by-election, basically. So there's the idea that they, they really got smashed, and they're getting smashed in some of these um, uh, blue um, ribbon seats because they're strange on climate change. I don't think that's right. I think that the coalition government has looked... Um, uh, has looked strange on climate change to many people in those blue ribbon seats, not because it's been opposed to some of the big government climate change policies, but because it has been so incapable of selling a positive story about its energy plan. Um, uh, and, and in the absence of that, it looks like a sort of troglodyte type movement, whereas the position that I think they should be focusing in on is, you know, technological change, um, moving to a, um, uh, a future energy mix that actually reflects the cost basis of energy consumption. So you're saying a market-based approach? Oh, goodness. That'd be radical. <laughs> give, give them a break, know, Chris. So They've only so had six years horrifying. to come up with a policy. And, and the policy yeah, that and, they, and they have come up with involves not technological change and incremental improvements, but big multi-billion dollar commitments uh, that, uh, as Colin also pointed out, actually crowd out other solutions. I was just going to say, well, I, that's right. I mean, really so now, believe... now we're talking about... No, sorry, 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 I was just going to say, I, I don't really believe um, that there's any advantage in being the second mover. So just, just looking at it from this political perspective and talking about what policy they should adopt if they want to win the election, I'm not sure that matching Labor mm. actually... like. The, the theory is that you nullify the issue. You say, like, um, we're on a unity ticket on climate change in some sense. But I don't know that there's any evidence that suggests that the voter is that silly. If the voter is committed to climate change, then they tend to give, I think, the benefit of the doubt to the party that moved first. So I don't know what the downside is of saying... And, it, and this is true. You don't even need to start from a position of uh, questioning the science. You can just question the policy response if that's what they're more comfortable doing. But I just don't understand the this question of moving second, how that nullifies the problem. I just, I, yeah. as a voter, I don't see that. You're right, it doesn't, and that's why they're losing. Well, it, it doesn't nullify the problem at all. It's also, it's it also it not about climate, as I've said on this podcast before. It's not about climate. It's about renewables, which is sort of a talismanic word. It's... it's uh, it's not cl- climate action. It's not t- 
targeting CO2. It's just more renewables and uh, 50% of renewables has to be better than 39% of renewables. Yeah, so and, 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 that's what, and that's what makes the policy so hopeless. So we're now talking about, quote, direct action style climate solution packages. We're going to focus on big picture um, or, or big large scale renewable schemes like Snowy 2.0. Apparently, we're going to get a national electric vehicle strategy, which is embarrassing. The Scott Morrison is now praising the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which the Abbott government tries to abolish. Uh, but I, I think there's a bigger discussion that we can have here because, there's, there was, in fact, there was a rather interesting piece in Quillette, I think it was last week, on why renewable energy, well, renewables can't save the planet was by a guy named Michael Schellenberger. He was a former renewable activist that helped build the coalition that led to Barack Obama's renewable promises in 2007. Anyway, so his, his argument is that renewable, the limitations to renewables are not a technological limitation. So there's been lots of advances in solar and wind, but they are, they are a natural limitation. So the more um, unreliable or the less energy dense the fuel that you receive, so for instance, you're receiving sunlight or wind or so forth, then um, the, that determines the environmental impact. So the more, the, the um, you know, if we need to spread solar panels across larger areas of land, that is actually more harmful to the planet than more dense fuel alternatives. And he ends up arguing that, that nuclear power is almost certainly the resolution to this. I think this is a really interesting conversation because it tells us or leads us in a direction, if there was a free market in energy, which unfortunately we do not have in Australia and it doesn't look like we're going to have any time soon, what would that free market and that technological change actually spit out? And I suspect it would continue the long-run decarbonisation of the economy that the market has been driving for 200 years since we got rid of global oil. But it wouldn't necessarily give you more wind farms and more solar because of their natural inherent limitations. That's what I read into that article and and their own environmental footprint. Yeah, and what's what's yeah, so, no, that's, what's that's so interesting right. about this is um, that from going back to the discussion about political economy, we, we know that most of the proponents or many of the proponents of wind and solar do not care about the environment or climate change. They want subsidies. That's what they're after. So we shouldn't be surprised that wind and solar doesn't help the environment or do much about climate change because it's not intended to. It's intended to be a, a rent-seeking handout to um, politically engaged groups. Yeah, that's what um, I that's took the, from this. That's, that's the framework. Yeah, that's what I took from this article was that if you are really committed to the idea that there's a very short period of time in which you could um, drastically reduce carbon emissions, then you would be very interested in nuclear energy because it's proven technology that can produce the baseload power that our modern economy needs. So if you were really serious, you would obviously be very favourable to this technology, notwithstanding the high costs of setting up nuclear power plants. You'd be, you'd be saying, well, actually, those upfront costs really are worth it, particularly when you consider that powering um, the entire grid is what we require, but also we require a grid that can power all of our vehicles as well. Um, because the idea is eventually to move everyone onto into electric vehicles as well. So you would think that if you took the premise really seriously, <laughs> yes, that's right. you'd be very interested in nuclear power. And that's before you even get into this thing that I've seen going around on Twitter of like, if you were really serious about it, you'd think about like bombing coal plants in China and things like that. 
um, if you really thought you were saving the world. That's a thought experiment, yes. Um, yeah, that's, well, that's, what, that's <laughs> what people are saying. That's the Donald next step Trump, in the like criminal justice project. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, no, it's just a, yeah, it's a rhetorical device oh, to good. bring okay. home this point <laughs> that a lot of people who say, as Dan said, that um, the problem is really serious, when you... And I know that, you know, in good faith, we're not necessarily supposed to question people's motives. But when people are invested in very specific solutions to the problem that they've diagnosed, knowing that those solutions won't meet the problem that they're talking about, then I do think that it's legitimate for us to be suspicious. Yeah, and we'll put this... Well, I, I don't think you have to go that far. I don't think you have to go to question the motives. So I, I think we're, the, the environmental movement is on a sort of path dependency. So they committed at one stage that we have to mitigate climate change and we have to mitigate it through this specific suite of technologies. Um, rather and, and, and their response to every new piece of climate news, every new natural disaster, whether it's connected to climate change or not, is just to double down on that because that's what they're prepared to do. Now, if you took the argument seriously, yes, I think he would be talking about nuclear energy, but you would also be talking in a way that they do not about really serious adaptation and then potentially even really serious geoengineering. And so, you know, the enormous advances that have been made in carbon capture and storage, so you can suck the CO2 right out of the sky. We should be talking about those sorts of things rather than just trying to pursue one or two particular technologies that are very deeply loved by the environment. Uh, uh, Chris, that's that's a striking point about path dependencies. That the because uh, that says the idea is solar and wind. That commitment was made, you know, twenty thirty years ago, and and so when the criticisms made that they're intermittent and have inherent limitations, they nevertheless say, well, we'll solve those problems with additional solutions, and that is what uh, Snowy to and bringing more pump storage energy from. Tasmania involved. Um, in that Quillette article, there's a great point made that the traditional friend in political economy of intermittent renewables is the gas industry because uh, you can sell a lot of gas uh, in, into a fast response peaking plant and all that's happening really is we're just providing different solutions, uh, solutions that are different to batteries, different to gas-fired power stations. So uh, now it looks like the election will turn on whether or not it's um, uh, Labor's batteries or the coalition's snowy 2.0. I don't get it. I think yeah, that, no, that, that, that's right. I think I think there is in in what Chris said. There's like uh, there is a point that I would uh, disagree with just slightly on this, which is that um, decarbonisation or or like uh, future technologies that take carbon dioxide out of the air is more of a speculative technology than something like nuclear uh, nuclear power. I think. The difference is, and I think that this is, well, this is what I took from, we all read these things through our own prejudices, but what I took from this article was <laughs> that the real, one of the real advantages of nuclear power is that it's a proven technology. We don't actually need to bet on innovation. This already works. Um, we've already gone through some of the, the teething problems with the technology, um, you know, power plants that failed, um, although I consider that risk to be lower than some people would, but... Um, we, you know, we've already gone through the trial and error part of this to a large extent. This is a proven technology. I think that if you were, um, you know, really serious about the problem, this is, you know, I think there's a, a reason to side with precedent rather than innovation, and I think that's where the nuclear power is really interesting. That's, that's true. Look, that, that's very true, except the problem that we have with nuclear power. So let's take the um, worst-case scenario of um, uh, climate change alarmism, just for granted for argument's sake. 
The problem that we have with nuclear power is that it just takes forever to build these families. They are really, really slow and, and um, under particularly the regulatory environment that we live in. Red tape. Um, the problem here is red and tape, around not the, the technology. World. Well, yeah, yeah, it is, absolutely. But but the problem with red tape is, as we know, it takes time to get rid of red tape and so forth. So if you're talking about practical solutions, it's not clear to me. And, and I think that we should be starting this process. We should have started it yesterday. But um, if you're talking about practical solutions, then... You know, when you when you might have a nuclear power reactor, the best case scenario is up and running in 15 years. In that 15 years, we're also going to get some of the innovations that's going to make it significantly less speculative. I think we should be doing both. I think we should be caring about all these things. But the problem is that we um, that nuclear power, as good as it is and as desirable as it is in this context, is unfortunately it's just it's just going to take a long time. I think there's there's value in also looking at exactly what we have been doing um in the area like we so it's fine to speculate about what we all think we could do and i i sort of reject the premise because i don't think it's a problem so i don't think we should be doing anything in particular <laughs> but uh, it just reminds me of uh what bjorn lomborg has written about like if you so bjorn lomborg is someone who's who believes in man-made global warming human-made global warming thinks that governments and people should be doing something about it but he analyzes what is it like it, he analyzes the actual politics and the actual policy that we have put in place to try and address these issues. And his estimate of, for example, of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is the main international vehicle for trying to reduce um, temperature rises, is that it will cost at least a trillion dollars, up to two trillion dollars, if the policies so a trillion if they're implemented, if policies are implemented optimally, and up to two trillion if they're implemented inefficiently. Um, for next to absolutely no benefit. So I like to look at this, that we live in a world of politics. We live in a world of political economy. We live in a world where other governments are trying to get competitive advantages against other competing governments. So the reason why Europe wants Australia in Paris is because Australia has high energy costs. Europe has lower energy costs, and that's an economic advantage to Europe, the same as China, the same as India. And so they want to embed us into an arrangement that puts us at a competitive competitive economic disadvantage. So by the, even if, you know, without talking about the science, without speculating on technology, the simple political economy of all of this um, suggests that doing nothing is the best option. And you can read Daniel Wild's analysis of the Paris Agreement on, at ipa.org.au. Uh, a lot of the solutions to climate change and renewable energy that we've just been talking about, we, uh, Andrew Bushnell used the phrase, big government. Uh, and in America, there's a bit of a debate going on. Uh, Ross Doubt at the New York Times opinion columnist, uh, one of the House Conservatives, uh, had an article called The Era of Limited Government is Over. Chris Berg, what does that tell us about what's going on? Yeah, so Ross Doubt is, is, um, uh, is it's a really interesting piece and it reflects a debate that's occurring in the United States at the moment in the Trump era. And so there's a number of conservatives particularly associated around um, sort of pro-Trump conservative movement that are starting to think that we need to not um, uh, obsess about the need for limited government, but be able to try to use some of the institutions of the state to turn culture around. So there's this quote that everybody uses these days that um, culture is, or politics is downstream from culture. The challenge is, well, what happens if the culture is going in, in a direction that, that you think is bad. What happens if woke capitalism seems to be taking over big business? And I'm going to, I'm going to, you, you'll indulge me. I'm just going to quote an article that really clarifies 
exactly um, uh, his, his argument. Um, Post-Trump's conservatives are likely to be drawn to state power conservatives, not just by ambition, but by a sense of necessity. So the earlier conservative understanding was that we need to defend non-government institutions against the state. It assumed that most non-government institutions would be friendly to, to conservative values. But as civil society, he argues, has, has decayed over recent decades, its remaining power centers have also become increasingly left-wing. I think this is a really interesting argument. It's also a very politically um, uh, uh, sensitive, not sensitive, a politically contemporary argument as well, because it is where some conservatives are thinking, and this reflects, this, this most famously is reflected in the debate about, you know, should we be regulating Facebook to protect, prevent conservative voices from being, quote, censored on Facebook and so forth. And I'd be interested in everybody's, everybody's views about this. I'll, I'll share mine in a moment. I think, I think what they're trying to get at, I think it's a little bit, I'm not sure that the headline that was chosen for that piece uh, in the New York Times is necessarily exactly where um, Ross Dow that came down in the end of the article. By the end of the article, he's kind of saying there's got to be a mid, he says something like there's got to be a midpoint between movement conservatism, which has always in the United States been kind of inflected with libertarianism. Um, and then I think what he refers to as fascism um, he says it's got to be somewhere in the middle where the state um, makes sense in this in this debate. And I think what the debate really is, it's not necessarily that um, the st- so-called state power conservatives are against limited government, that they've suddenly become in favour of a really sprawling administrative state. I mean, the guy who wrote the article that kicked this off, his name is Daniel McCarthy, his Twitter handle is Tory Anarchist, which gives you an idea of where he's coming from. So I don't think he suddenly abandoned the idea that the state needs limits. There is, however, a, a really conservative Burkean element to this, which is the assertion that negative liberty, the idea that there's a space in your personal life as an individual in which you are sovereign, in which you operate as an individual unencumbered by, um, to a certain extent at least, by government action and the choices of others, that idea, negative liberty, that space around you, is itself a concession by society to you as an individual, as a historic, not just as a historical matter, but as a matter of principle. Um, and so negative liberty is an act of positive law. And I think that's what they're saying. is they're, they're saying that left to our own devices, the natural course of things is to interfere more and more in people's lives. And we see that with big tech. Right, that left to their own devices, they will grow to the point where they can track every single thing about you. And so what they're saying is there's a point at which the government needs to step in to make sure that that space in which you are sovereign is real. Mm. That, that's interesting. And what it, what it reminds me of a little bit is another related inflection point on the right, which comes back to, and you, and you mentioned this with the idea of negative liberty, is Lockean liberalism versus, say, historical accounts of liberalism. So the Lockean liberalism is really the, the state of nature, we have natural rights, and we're all free and equal as individuals, and we give up some of that liberty to government to protect us, uh, security, property rights, life, and so on. The historical account, which I think is what you're getting at, is actually the opposite. Where uh, Traditionally, there was very strong sovereign rulers that had a lot of power, and that as a matter of historical fact, some of that was given up to people over the years. So if we look at the English history, 
Magna Carta, Petition of Right, Glorious Revolution, Bill of Rights, all of which claim to draw upon an ancient liberty and right that the English people had, but they were, as a matter of historical fact, concessions by rulers to other people. And so they are very, very different ways of thinking about why we have a right to freedom. And I think that is what's driving the inflection on the right. Look, I, I think that <laughs> I think that's all very interesting, but I don't think that really speaks to the debate that is going on at the moment. Um, I, and I don't disagree with you. Why is um, that? I see uh, that as but, the debate. No, no. So, so, so the issue that we have right here is not, um, uh, you know, not does the state give us rights or the rights or, or, or we vouchsafe our rights with the state. The issue right now is should we be using state power to enforce our preferences, whether good preferences or bad preferences, our cultural norms and values on private actors, whether those private actors are individuals or universities or corporations or community organizations or anything like that. Now, I can tell, I can also tell a story that um, those, you know, we operate under a framework and that framework requires cultural norms and so forth. But what we're really talking about here is should we crack down on works capitalist part? Yeah. And, and I think, I, I think that is, I think that's horrifying. Yeah, and it's I, certainly not the conservatism that that any free marketeer should be supporting. I think the, uh, I'm I'm a bit more inclined to believe that that uh, well, there might be older traditions of conservatism, but this to me, I, I think it's a the moment is almost where Trumpism becomes a philosophy you know, in in a sense that it, it's it's. Uh, uh, having got hold of the the levers of state, um, let's let's use them uh, even in a in a post Trump world, and uh, it's it's also bringing to mind for me some older arguments on the American right, which which are more about the role of the government just in uh, making people's lives better, because historically uh, the view was that the Democrats did all the policy wonky stuff. And the Republicans just said, well, if government got out of the road, we wouldn't need to worry about all that technical detail. And so there's there's different threads in this argument. And one of, and, and perhaps the, the respectable side of it is, well, if you're going to have government, at least put it to some useful purpose. But whether that purpose is, is simply becoming the countervailing force to uh, the cultural left is, is a pretty problematic idea for me. I don't think it can be but, otherwise. But who, who decides that purpose? Who decides that purpose? I mean, we can't. There are an infinite number of preferences and life plans and decisions that everybody wants to make in society. And yes, we have a democratic system, but that democratic system doesn't adequately reflect the diversity of, of preferences and plans of the citizenship underneath. But it, but it can't so, be otherwise. Yeah, look, it can't I'm, be otherwise. The, other, the, the institutions that we have already reflect the aggregation of some people's preferences. That, that is just how it is. That By living in a society... Even, even our informal, non-government institutions exist to impose a particular view of things. So all institutions exist, I would argue, for a function. And when we're defining a function, we're also defining what's good for people, right? We're saying this function, achieving this thing, this goal, is good for people. Um, it's inherent in the idea of institutions. So absent a complete Unabomber-style anarchism, you are going to exist in a world 
of institutions in which other people's idea of the good sometimes, well, it always influences your own, but sometimes supervenes upon your own. And so the question is now, is what's established in our institutions, in government and throughout society, actually good for people? And I think that there's growing evidence um, that it's not. And then that really does become a matter for... Because it's a collective action problem. It's not something you can do as an individual. You can't just secede as an individual. So you have this collective action problem. And the question of whether these things are good... Uh, and good assess, I think, empirically over a long period of history, is up for debate, uh, and that's what that's yeah, look, where we're at. I, th- I think that's right. So um, I, I 100% agree with you that that uh, the framework that we live in, the laws that we have, has to reflect something because we can't each have our own individual tax rate. There has to be a, an agreement about what that tax rate is. We can't each have our own regulations. We have to agree what that is. Someone has to impose that on us. So in one sense, the framework that governs society is a decision and reflects the preferences of some people and not others, and it makes us do things and prevents us from doing other things. That's absolutely right. But I'm making the, the stronger claim. That's, that's politics. Absolutely. That's politics in the democratic community. I am a partisan. I am an aggressive supporter of a set of policies that maximizes the freedom of individual action outside the state, which is why I want regulations to be lower, which is why I want taxation to be lower as well. And it's why I don't want governments deciding to intervene in private organizations. But this, um, so as Bushy said before, a lot of this started with Daniel McCarthy. Now his article in the spectator US is called why libertarians are wrong. So you're making, I, I think, a claim for sort of a, a, a rules-based libertarian order and what a, a lot of the conservatives are saying, well, we, we don't have one, we're never going to have one. Uh, the idea of that idea of limited government remains that. Therefore, while the state continues to exist, what do we do? And that's, that's what I mean about the, the wonkish point, which is say, take healthcare reform in the US. It's like Obamacare is a disaster, it's big government healthcare, um, what we need to do is get government out of the road. Surprise, surprise, the Republicans have got the White House, the Senate and the House, and they don't know what to do with health care. Th- yeah, and I, I think I think there's actually a midpoint between needing to get big government to fix things and having a, a purely Lockean limited government arrangement. I think we there's civil society, which which is families, you know, religious organisations, community organisations, employer groups, unions, everything else that we do, in our lives that's not related to government and not purely an individual endeavour. Um, I think that if you're concerned about the future of freedom, that it doesn't make sense to be neutral on the content of that civil society. That doesn't mean, I think, that we should be using government to enforce a particular idea of civil society. But what I think it does mean is that we need to become comfortable in saying Family formation is good and important. Home ownership is good and important. That voluntary associationism and mutualism that comes with that is good and important, not just for human flourishing and dignity, but for freedom. We, we know that those institutions historically are very important bullocks against the expansion of government. And the issue that we have is an increasingly individual atomized society um, goes along with the logic of an expansion of government because individuals cannot 
do everything themselves. They need mutualism. They need assistance from others. And the question for us is, do we want that assistance? Do we want that mutualism to be provided voluntarily in a civil society setting? Or do we want it to come from government? I want it to come from civil society, but our civil society is collapsing. That is causing government to expand because people still have needs that need to be satiated. And so being being neutral about that, I think, is the wrong way to go. Yeah, the IPA used to publish, uh, uh, and, and many listeners and, and members will remember, the FACTS booklet. So FACTS was this um, a little booklet that was the paybacks of um, uh hundreds of thousands of people around the country produced by the IPA. And it would list a bunch of facts about the Australian economy and industry and, and so forth during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Now, but the, I've, I've, I've often looked and enjoyed the old archives of IPA facts and I hope um, sometimes people have a chance to have a look at them themselves. But on the front page of each fact was a little essay. It would be an essay on something like, you know, the importance of courage or the importance of conscientiousness or just sort of moral claims, not um, why free markets are better than socialism, but but you know how we should act in our in our personal, community, family, business lives. And I think there's we don't do that anymore. Not not the IPA, but we as a society, and maybe we as liberals or conservatives, don't talk about as much as we should the importance of individual self improvement. Now, as I as I say this, I think well, there is one person who does that right now, and that's Jordan Peterson, and that might well be explanation for for his popularity because we're talking about self-improvement and self-empowerment and community building and all these important things that actually are the bulwark as as Burke or Toffel would have said of our of our liberty the the, 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 the question is whether it's coherent um, to have a kind of a skeptical idea uh, of about knowledge that informs our government institutions while uh, maintaining a less sceptical or even a realist view of like the virtues as they exist and are embodied in other institutions. So the argument, I guess, that used to come up um, a few years ago, probably like 20, 20 30 years ago, there was this big argument in philosophy between the, di- the difference between being a liberal and being a communitarian. And one of the, one of the arguments there was about um, – whether you could really be liberal in your politics but communitarian in your private life, um, ba- just basically because the, the belief system would have to be incoherent. Um, I think that's kind of the dispute that we're seeing here. Well, I can see, I can see Dan is kind oh, of... I'm trying to think through it. Yeah, yeah, trying to think through this. Um, so maybe <laughs> so I haven't explained yet, that. But the, the, the idea is that um, the, the fundamental premise about why you would be uh, liberal institutionally or in in politics is basically like like Chris said that you don't know other people's preferences, uh, you don't know other people's minds, um, and so you're skeptical about that. You have to say, look, I don't. I, there are certain things I just don't know, and I don't know what the aggregate effects of their preferences are going to be, whether they're going to be good or bad. But then in, we're in, we're saying that in other parts of our lives we're not skeptical, right? Like when we form families. Um, we're not being, we're not operating in a skeptical way. We're saying this is actually good, and not just for me, but for my family. I start making decisions for my children. My wife and I make decisions together. Yeah. But it's only it's only incoherent if if you assume that all values need to be scalable. Uh, this goes back to uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's point uh, in his uh, through a number of his books, Anti Fragile and Skin in the Game, amongst them, which is. The values that you take into your family are very different to the values that you should be using when you're interacting with a very distant federal government. And he, he himself, for instance, said uh, 
um, uh, at the federal level, I am a Republican. At the at the state de- level, I'm a Democrat, and at the uh, at the local level, I'm a socialist. So I don't. It's only incoherent if if you assume that the, these things uh, should all follow exactly the same value structures. That's a very good point, and I, I do I do take it. But there is a limit to that, which is that whatever it is that the highest level of institutional structures does can't interrupt the formation of that lower level. So if it were the case that in Taleb's schematic, or schema, to be more exact, I guess, uh, the uh, the top-level government, libertarian, say, um, in some way interfered with the process of form, forming these more socialistic, or <laughs> I think he even says communistic, familial relations, um, then it would be a problem. And I think, and that's where you get back to this this point that's been going on, this debate that we're having about what they're talking about in America is whether the establishment of those principles, the founding principles of that uh, top-level liberal order are actually running counter to the formation of those things um, that are more local and, in fact, more valuable for people. I think that's the, that's the nub of it. Uh, so, Andrew, do you, do you mean when you say there might be differences between the higher-order libertarian idea and the more social idea at the local level that it's it's getting into this issue that Patrick Deneen and, and others have been talking about on the right, which is to do with the atomization of individuals and that being incompatible with the formation of the kind of civil society that we've been discussing. Yeah, basically the idea would be that the, the government action, the administrative state, one of the things that's bad, I think that we can make this point in addition to the point that Berg has made about, about why we're, li- we're concerned with limiting government. One of them is that by operating, it actually dissolves. It, it, it doesn't just interfere with the f- family formation process. It actively dissolves um, the aggregation of this knowledge in these institutions. So a, li- a liberal government needs atomised individuals to exist. That's a part of the institutional logic, is the argument. Yes. That it can't have a civil cause, society. Because it, that's, its, that's its premise. That's so the, it's, the well, idea... Deneen's argument. I, I dispute that. I mean, it, it, it sure, surely is a, a sort of a... what. McCloskey might yeah, there's, there's a, a there's bourgeois order that's, that's possible. There's, there's an interesting tension in liberal thought, which I think is what we're talking about, which is what what is the role of the family, because it's the, or, or even what is the role of the firm, because there's these sort of socialised um, systems in the middle of a you know an, uh, an individualistic society. And on that, I'd like to recommend a book outside the book recommendation section of the podcast. Um, oh, double uh, dipping, uh, Berg. I don't know. A double dipping, double dipping. Um, uh, Steve Horowitz is a Horowitz, I should say. H O R W I T Z is a um, uh, an economics professor, and he's written a really interesting book called Hayek's Modern Family. Because and and the idea behind this book is that libertarians, classic liberals, don't spend enough time trying to apply the um, uh, economic and philosophical principles that a Hayekian liberal order um, suggests uh, to to the family, to the most one of the most fundamental social institutions in society. And so his argument is about, um, uh, because he's a Hayekian and he's interested in um, sort of discovery and evolution, his argument is about the evolution of the family and the family's role in community and as related to the individual. But I, I, I highly recommend it as a really engaging non-conservative free market approach to, to, to the family. Excellent. And Chris, last night you were, we mentioned this at the top of the show, talking about drug law reform. 
Yeah, so so I was, as I said, I was at um, uh, Murdoch University with Generation Liberty, IPS Generation Liberty, talking about um, drug law reform. Uh, what what I so so the argument I mounted, I'd be interested in people's perspectives. Was it was it was a lot of fun to go to a pub and talk about drug law reform because you know uh, uh, IPA's Renee Gorman was was buying beers for all the Generation Liberty students. Um, we, we we were all I was holding a glass of wine and we're talking about well what drugs should be legal and what drugs should be illegal. My argument, which I've, I've aired a few times in the past, is basically the schedule of drugs, the ones that have been made illegal and the ones that are legal is not determined by harm or whether that harm is to society or whether that harm is to um, to the individual. It's been determined by politics, been determined by um, uh, political culture at the time that um, drug law was being considered in um, its first instance in the early 20th century by progressives. And, of course, you know, in, in Australia, it was very related to the, the um, uh, opium consumption by Chinese migrants in the United States, marijuana consumption by Mexican migrants and um, uh, African-Americans. And that politics, the politics of the early 20th century, has determined which drugs are legal and which drugs are illegal. Um, I suggest that in that context, we need to start really radically rethinking why we ban certain amounts of consumption because I'm opposed to the nanny state and I'm opposed to the government deciding what I can and cannot do with my own body as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. Um, and and it, it seems to me that the arguments that we mount in relation to tobacco, to alcohol, to um, any other, any other um, uh, drug of leisure, caffeine, can be just as easily applied to recreational illegal drugs. This this strikes me, Chris, as, as kind of an application of the discussion we were just having in a way. Um, because I think we can, I, I would say that we, we can say that a society in which everyone is on drugs is bad. Um, I think we know that. Um, and I think that the more, um, the, the more uh, liberal the approach is at the top level around drugs, the less able I am as a family to keep uh, to keep my son away from drugs, um, he's going to be exposed to that more. Um, and so I, th- I I consider that to be an application of the problem. And and from the criminal justice perspective, I do I definitely do take your point. I, I would t- I would say it more. Um, I think it's I think drugs in our society is a question of over punishment more so than over criminalisation. Um, so I do think that there's a case here for them to be criminal, knowing that um, knowing that it, it should attract some sort of social opprobrium because we know that the aggregate effects and indeed the individual effects for people are bad. Um, but I think being caught with drugs is like, it's definitely not something that should um, wreck someone's life. I mean, this is a very common mistake. Um, the arbitrary enforcement of this is kind of a moral scandal in and of itself. Um, and certainly the costs associated with putting people in prison for low-level drug offending is definitely something that this society needs to reckon with. Um, so I, I think, think that's right. just distinguish so, between those two concepts. Yeah, look, look. so one of the things that really bugs me, um, and I, I think is morally obscene, is um, in the case of marijuana use, the number of very senior politicians who freely admit, even if sheepishly so, to having used marijuana in the past, to having used marijuana when it is and was illegal, 
but then having had a successful career afterwards. Now, it's morally obscene because right now we arrest and charge thousands of people on marijuana-related charges in Australia, or whether it's consumption or trafficking or anything like that. But there are people in this country who have had some really serious consequences for their lives because they were charged with marijuana possession, the same sort of possession that our senior politicians tend to laugh off. And it's very senior politicians, you know, Julie Gillard, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, Wayne Twan, Peter Garrett, all these very senior politicians have admitted to having used marijuana. If they had been caught, we would not know of them. We would not know of their, their um, political stardom. I agree that the arbitrariness is, is, is definitely... I, I, I can't let this moment pass without observing of Bill Clinton, who famously said, I did try it, but I didn't inhale, which is... Third uh, way. That was definitely the, the third way. Uh, it, gets, get, it gets better. It <laughs> gets better. Harris, uh, if you're in Christopher, one of uh, Christopher Hitchens' reminiscences, because uh, they were contemporaries uh, in England at the time, the real story of Bill Clinton was that he didn't need to inhale a joint, which he didn't like, because he was uh, having so much hash. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting is uh, Kamala Harris, in a, in a recent interview, said, oh, yeah, I've, I've smoked marijuana, and the, the, the interviewer said, oh, did you inhale? And she's like, yeah, of course I inhaled, I'm Jamaican. You know, So that shows how the <laughs> political climate has changed a bit, in addition to it being probably quite offensive to Jamaicans. But I want to just get back to a <laughs> fundamental point that Andrew made, which I think is really important, which is the idea of self-regarding and other-regarding behaviour. So the libertarian position is basically I'll do, you know, I should be free to do what I want unencumbered by external interference provided I'm not affecting other people. And that's, I, I generally agree with that. But I don't think, I don't think this is a clear, uh, a clear red line between self-regarding and other-regarding behaviour. I mean, we, I mean, there's Andrew's point about, well, if norms change, then we can expect that that will have an influence on people's behaviour. But also just practically, we have a public healthcare system. If I overdose, you're paying for it. So don't we have to take that into account? No, I, 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 think that's, I think that's a really bad argument that we should be running. So you see this argument in uh, the case of uh, alcohol consumption, the case of tobacco consumption, where the nanny staters will mount an argument that says something like, you know, the social cost, the cost to the welfare system is so catastrophically high from alcohol and tobacco consumption that we need to regulate it or we need to crack down, we need to move to a zero tobacco world future. Now, what that says to me, what that says to me is that we have created this socialized healthcare system and it is unable to handle individual choices. It is unable to handle the free choices of the people that we set up the socialized welfare system from, the socialized healthcare system from. That is probably the biggest damnation of socialized health you can imagine. We created this, this, the government gave us this gift of free healthcare. Turns out it's unable to handle people, people's choices, <laughs> so we should change those choices. I, mean, I, I think it's a, a, an incredibly damning claim about socialized healthcare, but I do not want to live in a world where the government gives us stuff or, or requires us to pay taxes for stuff and then tries to change our behavior to suit its own policy. We need to reform the medical system, not yeah, try to change people's choices. We do, but why isn't that in the argument? So the drug legal, like, no one in the drug legalization says that. Um, well, I, I think do. the honest thing... <laughs> well, but, one. The, no, no, the one. First, but that wasn't the first argument. The first argument is I should be able to do what I want. So what I'm, what I'm getting at here is 
if we're going to be honest, we should say, no, we need to privatise the healthcare system and then we'll look at drug legalisation because there is well, going to be a net, a net, in my estimation, legalising drugs will mean a net reduction to freedom because of the socialised system we live in. And so we need to be very careful about the practical effects. Like I say, we, li- we, we live in a world where policy exists and much of that policy is bad. We need to change that policy first to ensure that people's the negative aspects of people's behaviour aren't becoming socialised onto others through um, public health care. There's example. no necessary uh, reason, <laughs> in my view, to be absolutely consistent between... Just like, okay, alcohol abuse is widespread and priced into our uh, socialised health care system. It's Therefore, not priced. Sorry, go well, on. Well, like, go well, on, go on, sorry. Or it's like dis- the cost is distributed amongst all of us. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, in that sense. So... But just because we do that with one thing, or in in our case, there's two really widespread drugs that we use, which is nicotine uh, and alcohol. Just because we do that with those historic vices that we have, doesn't mean we need to extend that to all other anything that we might otherwise ingest. Uh, uh, this this idea that um, there's always a qualitative similarity between things is actually, in my view, illusory and not borne out by history, which is the thing mm. that should guide us. That, funnily to, go to, to go to Dan's point, to go to Dan's point, I think one of the issues that we have in the drug reform movement is that um, the dispute is between conservatives on the one side and progressives on the other. So progressives so talk about things like harm minimization, and harm minimization in practice involves actually a, a really significant amount of, of state power. A lot of people talk about the success of Portugal in decriminalising all drugs, no exceptions, all drugs. But in fact, the, the actual policy, the policy process they built into that involved a huge amount of um, uh, social services connected to if you were picked up holding a drug, you would sit in front of a panel of social workers and they would direct you to all these sorts of things. What we what we lack in this conversation is, is liberal arguments for drugs reform, um, uh, in part because when we're a small country, there are liberal arguments for drug reform or libertarian arguments for drug reform in the United States, but there aren't as many here and there aren't as many advocates. But I think it's important that, that we, as in the, the um, classical liberal or even conservative and libertarian wings of the centre-right, when we talk about these things, we should be trying to prioritise the values that, that we hold dear, which is individual choice, individual liberty, and the um, a, a concern about the overarching and overweening power of the state. But the the concern I have is I don't have a choice not to pay for someone else's bad behaviour, and I want that to yeah, be fixed yeah, first. Uh, I want to fix that first. Of yeah, but that well, needs no, to be no, fixed that, first, in my view, because it, and this goes to other things, whether it's you know freedom of association, freedom of speech, and religion in the context of same sex marriage, whether it's a variety of other things. We need to fix the underlying incursions on individual freedom, in my view before we start expanding other areas of personal choice because it's just not clear how this washes out in terms of a net effect on personal liberty. And that's what that's what I personally get concerned about. But isn't that interesting? I mean, what, in that context, we're just talking about an ordering problem. Which one problem, should we sorry? do first? An ordering problem. Mm. Which one should we do first? Um, rather than the, the conservative argument or a conservative argument that might be, well, we can't actually accept this because of um, Andrew's position is that that there will be, you know, a society where there's widespread drug use is not a good society. That's that's not the argument here. We're talking about, well, should we should we decriminalise drugs or should we 
reform the healthcare system, which one comes first? Now, I, I favour small steps towards a better world, and I think that um, the harm from the war on drugs is significant enough to, to be concerned. But I we'll keep this question ha- rather than a policy one. And uh, and pill testing has been thrown around as the first thing that we do next, but we might try that one another day. We have reached that point in the show where we talk about what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Andrew Bushnell. Oh, yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, I have watched recently uh, streaming on, on Foxtel, for anyone who's interested, uh, a show called Sharp Objects, um, which was a, a mini-series that was made uh, last year, um, made by the, the, same, the same director who made um, Big Little Lies that people might have watched with Nicole Kidman, um, uh, which itself is actually something that I'd recommend people watch. It's pretty interesting. Um, a good yarn. But this Sharp Objects is actually a very confronting detective story about a journalist um, who goes back to her small town uh, to investigate two murders. Um, she's, but she's sent there against her will, essentially, by her editor because, as it turns out, she's left this small town because of some really significant trauma. So the show uses the detective story format um, to explore this issue about uh, her trauma. And wh- what's what's really interesting about it is that there are a lot of stories that get told about the effects that fathers have on their sons. A less explored topic is the effect that mothers can have on their daughters. Um, and that's really what this what this show gets into. Um, and, you know, it's a kind of a favourite genre of mine is um, using a detective frame to explore other issues. I mean, for me, the archetype of this is... Um, Umberto Echo's uh, The Name of the Rose, which is actually a discussion of his particular view of um, semiotics, um, but with a great, great yarn. This detective story doesn't necessarily work quite as well. Um, also, it sort of comes down to, you might have heard at school, an old riddle, um, it was like um, a, a boy comes into emergency surgery and the doctor says, the surgeon says, I can't operate on him, he's, not, he's my son but the surgeon is not his father. And the riddle is that like people sometimes stumble over the fact that, well, it turns out the surgeon is his mother, right? Um, and this show ultimately boils down to the same kind of insight, which is that um, the, the experience of women sometimes gets left out of uh, the stories that people tell themselves and that this has negative effects for, not just for women who are the victims in this story, but also without spoiling the story too much, it's also that lack of attention to women's experiences that the show explores in who did the crime and why. And I think that makes it a really interesting take on the detective genre. So this is not quite Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. This is no, it's actually very, it's actually very <laughs> confronting and not for, not genuinely not for the if faint you, of if heart. If you think it's just a crime drama, forget it. You're right, okay, gotcha. Um, speaking of crime dramas, I have been watching also on Foxtel... Uh, the latest series of uh, True Detective with uh, the great Mahershala Ali. This is the, the third in the series, um, a series started by uh, Nick uh, Pizzolatio, uh, Pizzolato. Sorry. Uh, and it is quite remarkable. Those, those with long memories might recall way back in 2014, the original series with um, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson doing a lot of driving around in cars. A lot happened, but all I remember is 
it was hot. They were in Louisiana. They were driving around in cars, and there were like dark conspiracies everywhere. There was this sense that the people who ran the state were corrupt, uh, sexually, financially, and I, I couldn't tell you anything about the plot because I couldn't. You can't follow any of it, um, and. Uh, <laughs> In many ways, it's this, the vibe of the thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, season two, they introduced Rachel McAdams as as the Matthew McConaughey character. I'm not sure that worked, uh, but this this season is is actually brilliant. Mahershala Ali, uh, who we talked about last week, is the lead, and there's this tremendous device. You forget with storytelling, as well as having a, a great story, you've got to find a way to to tell it. And there's lots of shows where. You, the main character moves between time zones. But you need a device for explaining why that, that's happening. And in this case, it's it's the uh, incipient dementia that uh, Mahershala Ali's character in, is experiencing in 2015. And he keeps slipping back to 1980 when the, when the murders happened and 1990 when new evidence came to light. Uh, you got no idea what's going on for the first three or four episodes. So I'd, I'd tell listeners just... Just stick with it. Yeah, yeah that, that's what's interesting about True Detective, right? At its at its best, it's a show that's really about the experience of being a detective more than obviously there's a crime that provides the through line, but the show's really an exploration of what it what it is that these people really invest. And and in this particular case in, in this season, it's really well done that it turns out that his total investment in this case over a long period of time has informed his marriage, the way he's raised his children. Um, and it, it sort of shows the costs of that for him. And Mahershala Ali is just a like he's just a great actor. I mean, he he carries the story in three different timelines through all of its flat spots and more interesting spots. I think um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're right. It's it's um, uh, the experience of being a detective. They call it the reveal. I'm looking at James Bolt, our producer, and this was um, just as an aside. What what got annoying for me with uh, Westworld is. It had so many reveals that each episode just became about the reveal and it was a substitute for characterisation or plot development. It was just, you know, you know there's a big surprise coming. Yep. (laughs) Sounds good. It's been a while since I've seen both. But, yeah, like True Detective, very much about uh, the experience of being a detective. Like the plot line was just secondary. Westworld was written by Jonathan Nolan. Yeah. Um, And all of his scripts are about script structure and not about characters or really anything other than how clever he is as a writer. <laughs> so I'll just throw that out there. Um, feel free to email me uh, at IPA with your feedback about yeah, and all of the any Nolan fanboys listening, feel free to hit me up. Very good. Chris, how about you? Yeah, so um, we uh, took kids to um, the Escher exhibition, the MC Escher, the Dutch artist, at some exhibition at the National Gallery. It's the latest, or National Gallery of Victoria, I should say. Uh, it's the latest in these huge blockbuster exhibitions that the National Gallery of Victoria is putting on at the moment. Escher, um, uh, everybody will be familiar with Escher's um, woodcuts and lithographs. They're mathematically expired pictures of impossible architecture or geometric patterns. There's the very famous um, uh, ha- drawing hands I think it's a lithograph um, uh, or drawing hands where the hands are drawing themselves and so forth. It was a, it's, a, it's actually an amazing production and they've got all the um, Escher um, uh, products, the Escher um, pictures that, that you are familiar with and so forth. It's, it's interesting though because it is, I'm going to quote, in, it is quote, in dialogue 
with the Japanese design studio Nendo, which I, I wasn't familiar with, but it's um, what they've done is actually really rip out um, uh, huge sections of, of normal, uh, the, the normal exhibition um, spaces and built these enormous architectural structures, um, uh, these these rooms of uh, illusions and so forth. And it's, uh, actually, it, it's an amazing production. They've put obviously a massive amount of money into it. It's, it's even good with children. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and they really enjoyed it because it felt a little bit like a playground, which, of course, uh, um, visitors to the exhibition may not have um, may not have been happy about, but I do highly recommend it. Do you do you know when uh, until when that exhibition is on? Yes, yeah, I should have mentioned. So it's actually it's uh, it's around for another month or so, so mid-April. So um, there is a chance to um, see it if you're in Melbourne or if you're visiting Melbourne. It's um, I, I would highly recommend. Unreal. It. Now that you've brought that to my attention. Uh, I confess I didn't know. Uh, I'm going to go to see that. <laughs> <laughs> great, man. Uh, mine's more of a, well, it's not more of a, it is a musical one or music-related one, which is the Arctic Monkeys. I didn't know whether to talk about that or Married at First Sight, but I'm still embarrassed to talk about the first, so I'm going to talk about Arctic, <laughs> Arctic I know Monkeys. nothing about either. Yeah, okay, well, that's good. So um, <laughs> I bring it up because they toured here. I think they're still touring. They were in Melbourne on Tuesday. I couldn't get tickets because, as always, as soon as I find out the tickets are on sale, they are sold out. So that was good. But it's interesting. Arctic Monkey's kind of musical development's been interesting because it sort of mirrors, in a way, the different genre. But one of my other favourite bands is Metallica, and there's a very interesting dynamic going on with their fans and with the, with the albums because the Arctic Monkey's had a certain style. That style changed with their last two albums, AM, which was hugely popular, and... Um, Tranquility, tran- tranquil, tranquility-based hotel and casino. Yeah, yeah that's that right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, don't look at me. <laughs> I enjoy. I mean, I enjoy their whole their whole catalogue, but they're very different albums. Um, I think their most two recent albums are interesting because there's a lot of depth to their songs. So you listen to it, there's a lot of atmospheric stuff going on, keyboards, you know, weird backing vocals and things. So it's quite the sound is quite deep and layered, which is quite different to their earlier albums. But a lot of original fans of Arctic Monkeys hate the new Arctic Monkeys and vice versa. So if you go to a gig, the 80% of people there only know the lyrics to AM songs. That's it. They just sit there like stunned mullets looking at everything else. Um, and it's exactly the same as Metallica when they had their first four albums, um, which are sort of seen as the, the true Metallica. Then they had Bob Rock came in to produce the Black Album. And they had Josh Home come in of Queens of Stone Age to produce AM for the Arctic Monkeys. Both brought a transition to their sound both made them more popular and both caused a permanent change to the music, musical style of the band. So I think uh, I, I'm all for it because I think bands need to, you can't write the same song a hundred times, right? Like Slayer does it. Slayer's written 10 albums with the same so, song on it. You know, it's just yeah. all the same. So, so your so, argument is that um, electric Bob Dylan is the only real Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I am one of those original, I, I liked, Arct- call me a simple um, I am simple. Um, Arctic Monkeys' original music was much better, and in particular, their first album is their best. But in particular, this most recent <laughs> album, by any in any sensible world, this most recent album would be a career ender, um, because it is that boring and that <laughs> self indulgent. No, it's self indulgent, and this is where. So the guy who writes all their their songs, the the front man, who's Alex named, Turner. Turner, that's it. Um, it's a weird unit. He is very clever, um, and this most recent album is using cleverness essentially as a shield from any kind of criticism so that this this is so overproduced so overwritten so boring that any criticism is just immediately deflected by you didn't get it because I'm a genius and 
<laughs> I think you'll see that he will pivot back to something that is more accessible next time because not just because obviously he has a commercial interest in doing so, but because you can't live with that kind of solipsism forever. I I I I take your point. I mean, it is a bit boring sometimes. There's a couple of crackers on there, like four out of five is a is a great song, I think. And it reminds me of Hotel California. It's the same tempo and so forth. So I actually reckon they ripped that off a little bit. But that's a, that's a good song. AM is is the best in my view. I think it just integrates a lot of interesting approaches to writing music. I mean, I play in a band, and I'm always interested in how people write songs and I listen to some of their songs, and particularly how he um, not not necessarily the lyrics, but the melody of the lyrics and how that goes against like the the rhythm section. I just go, that's genius. I just go, I could never write that. So I really appreciate it from that angle. Good advice for any current or potential Arctic Monkeys fans out there. If you're not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you can follow our podcast on the IPA's channels on iTunes, Podbeam, or any of the other great platforms. Uh, this show is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support our research. And this podcast, you can join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you today to our panellists. First of all, Dr Chris Berg. Thanks, Doc. Daniel Wild. Thank you. Andrew Bushnell. Cheers. And, of course, as always, our... Prince of Podcast, our producer, James Bolt. I prefer King, but thank you. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) done. Next time. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back next week with more Looking Forward.